Good morning. So glad you're with us here at South City. My name is Drew Klein. I'm one of the pastors, and I'm excited to continue our stories series. And one of the things we're doing in this series is kind of introducing you to different people in the church so that you can know us a little bit better. This is my dear friend. Come on up here. You're already on in the aisle. You might as well come on up. He's ready. This is my dear friend, Michael Lewis Shelton. He's one of these people with three names, you know. I don't ever know what to call him. But uh, I call him Lewis. Some yeah. of you call him Michael Lewis. I don't know, but that's who he is. One, all right, let me give you a microphone. So I'm so glad uh, to have Lewis come up and just hang out with me. I wanted him just to share a little bit about his story and a little bit about what God has been doing in his life. But just, man, can give us a little bit of background on who you are and what's going on. First of all, thank you so much for allowing me to do this. Second of all, like, on the way up here, I was so emotional because... Like, I've given my testimony a thousand times, but like, it's a little different because so many people in here have been instrumental in my growth. And I'm just so thankful and so humbled by being able to share my story right now. But so basically, um, I mean, I can start talking about where, you know, my addiction started or whatever, but like, actually, there, my addiction, you know, was just really me using drugs as coping mechanism for some deeply rooted problems that I had, some issues. And I started smoking marijuana at like 10 and then kind of using it as, you know, to cope with some things that happened in my childhood and, and in my teen years. And so it eventually, um, it kind of did like most of the time, it led to, to, you know, more drugs and different things. And so Eventually, I was probably about 19 or 20, and I just found myself like super broken, super broken, insecure, uh, trying to like reach out for happiness for things and constantly getting disappointed and disillusioned. And so somebody brought me a pill one time, and I had done pills before, hydrocodones, opiates. And, but this time it was so much different, it was like, Everything that like I had experienced, all these negative emotions, all these these things that I'd struggle with, like seemed to escape. And like so, it's like wow, that's awesome. Like all these things like that I've been struggling with seemed to, you know, go away. Why that was only while I was on them, not really kind of blindly going into it, not realizing that was going to cause me more problems. When I was 23 years old, I was arrested for some stuff that I had stolen from my work and I was put on probation and it's like a uh, it's on drug court actually and like it's probation but it's like a really extensive uh, really strict form of probation where you have to take drug tests and stuff like that so um, it would have been a great opportunity for me to get off drugs but I didn't take it I didn't want to let go of what I thought was making me happy and so I um so what I would do is like just manipulate the drug tests. I would manipulate this and that. And even like at one point in time, I had a pro, I worked for Miller Lite. I had a, a pro at this time and I worked and I had a probation officer and I would like give him beer and stuff like that on the side. So like I would get away with things, missing drug tests, stuff like that. But finally it caught up to me and it's a three year program. And I was in for six years because I got kicked out and I got reinstated. So. Anyways, she finally was tired of seeing me, the judge was, so she sent me to prison. And it's uh, basically where you go when you get sentenced from drug court is a nine-month program. It's basically like um, for recovery. And so, but when I went to, um, 
you know, to really highlight my testimony. Like when I went to um, to jail, like it, there was like this pipe on the top, and like it's made to like suck the smoke out, but like it was broken, so it would blow the air back. And it was like 30 degrees outside the whole time I was there, so like you could see your breath. And so like I'm intolerant to cold and like hunger, hunger. I was like hungry, cold. Uh, had this little thin sheet and this little, you know, so I was just cut off of all my sources of comfort and happiness from women, from drinking, from uh, drugs, everything. And that's where God revealed himself to me. Mm. He cut me off of all these things, these sources of comforts and joys so that I could find them in him. Mm -hmm. And that's been so powerful in my faith because like that's where it, it began to get, you know, I knew about Christ. And, um, you know, of course, like everybody in the Bible Belt does, but like I didn't know him. Like, it's kind of like, you know, I can go on Facebook and, and see who you are, but, like, I don't have to know you to know mm -hmm. these things. And that's kind of how it was. Mm -hmm. I began to experience him, and I began to, like, love his word. Like, I, I, was, I was, like, I loved it. And, yeah. and it gave me so much joy in such a dark and deep place. And, you know, just to continue on, I went to the nine-month program, and God just continued to work through ministers and reveal himself to me. Yeah. And I began to see, and I just began to be healed of so many insecurities and my brokenness and, like, learned that, like, no matter what it is internally, I can, I can bring it to God. He says to cast his burdens on him, and mm -hmm. any of it, I can do it. He's awesome. Amen. <laughs> I know I missed some things, but, like, I was trying yeah. to condense. Let so. me ask you this. What, what has, has the difference been made because of community, people who surround you, pray for you, love you, care so, for you. The, so somebody from my small group asked if I was nervous about coming, and I was like, absolutely not. Like, I thought that, like, I was going to be more emotional, but, like, the reason why is because, like, I'm passionate about this. This is not, like, why would I be nervous? I'm passionate. I get a chance to express it. So it's not like, you know, so, but there was a time, probably about a year, where I lost it. And I, like, I had gotten to the point to where like I was wanting to go back to my old lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I couldn't, I, I was going to all these churches and like wasn't, wasn't being fed. And then like, so my sister brought me here. And so like, it's been, it's just been so instrumental. Like there was one time where I was going through some stuff in February and my small group doesn't know this, but um, like I decided I was going to get high that weekend. And like, this was like on Wednesday. And so like something kept telling me, go to small group, go to small group. And like, it was, I know it was the Holy Spirit, like mm -hmm. go to small group. And I went to small group and I left there with this powerful energy mm -hmm. and sense of fellowship and sense of love that I felt from them. And obviously I didn't get high. Mm -hmm. And like, I haven't really, yeah. it hasn't, and it hasn't really, I mean, I've struggled, you know, with a few times with thoughts or whatever, but like nothing like this where it was like I'd made that decision. Right. You know, but like, it's just been so instrumental to me. That's why I was saying that like, it's, this is emotional because like, there's been so many people sure. that like, I love so much and has helped me so mm -hmm. much in my, in my walk because like, it's, it, it, you can't do it alone. No. You literally can't. Like, I know it sounds cliche, but like, you, you can't do it alone. No. And if there's some way, then I just haven't found it. And I don't really want to find it, to yeah, be honest. Right, exactly. <laughs> like, no. this is cool like this. 
<laughs> I love this man. Let's give him a hand. Michael Lewis Shelton. Love you, bro. Thank you. I, I love Lewis so much. He's, uh, he's honest, as you can tell. And God's doing a work in his heart and life that's, that's just, it's real. It's real. And one of the things I know that Lewis has learned and is learning, which many of us are learning, which is we need each other, just like he said. We can't do this alone. We have to have help. We can't walk this journey of life alone and actually be a Christian, honestly. Do you know that? Christians don't walk life alone and actually be in the will of God. To be in the will of God, we have to be in the family of God. And so Lewis is, is, is understanding this. In fact, he's one of my accountability partners. Lewis and I are on the phone or texting every week something usually, just encouraging to each other, praying for each other, speaking life into each other. And I'm thankful for that for you, for being willing to, to share my burdens in that way too. So thank you, brother, for doing that. So this morning we have a story that is, is similar. It's a story about a, a guy who needed people. <laughs> which is like any of us, but he really had a need for some, some, some good friends to care for him, to love him, and to lead him to Jesus. And uh, that's the story that we have this morning called Party Crashers. Now, before we get into it, i got to tell you, there was a time back in Tennessee, Lori and I were hosting a Christmas party for our uh, church elder, elders and staff, and, and we were in the kitchen, Lori and I were getting ready uh, for the meeting, and somebody walked in and said, hey, there's somebody here, and no one knows who he is. I'm like, well, this could be fun. Uh, so we, we, you know, we kind of wanted to have fun with it, but we, we didn't have too much fun at his expense. We went and sat down, sat down and had this unbelievably awkward conversation, right? Like, hey. He's like, hey. Yeah, so I'm Drew. Who are you? You know, yeah. What, um, hmm. Try, you're trying to find the right words to say, you know? Like, so uh, who, who do you know here at the party? He's mentioned some names, and I'm like, hey, I don't, I don't think they're at this party. <laughs> and as, he's, as I said that, I can remember him kind of looking around the room like, huh, yeah, this, this does look odd, you know? And I think he realized as we were talking, I'm at the wrong party. He had totally crashed our party and passed the one down the street. So we put an iced tea in his hand and said, well, brother, I think they're right down there, you know? Have a good afternoon. It was just kind of a weird thing. Have you ever done that on accident? Uh, we actually had, um, I don't know, is Missy in here? Did You did it, didn't you, Missy? She was supposed to come to our small group one time, and she went into our neighbor's house. They <laughs> welcomed her in. You didn't realize you crashed the party. This is uh, uh, a Muslim family in our neighborhood, and she, it's wrong religion, wrong house, everything. So she goes to the door, and they're like, come on in. You know, it's like. Sometimes you crash parties, and it makes for at least a good story. And this morning, we have an amazing party crasher story. So turn in your word with me to Mark. This story in text can be found in uh, three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But we're going to focus on the one of the Gospel of Mark this morning. Mark chapter 2, verse 1 says this, When he, speaking of Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, 
Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on heaven to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Isn't that a good story? Many of us are familiar with that story. If we've been in church for very long, we know the story of the paralytic that was let down through the roof, you know. And I wanted us just to kind of focus in on that because it's, it's obviously an incredibly interesting aspect of Jesus' ministry and story. The first thing we see is this is early in Jesus' ministry. This is chapter 2 of Mark, right? So he has is, he is selected the disciples. Uh, he's actually started healing people. He's preaching the word all over Galilee. He's doing these things that are still new in his ministry, but he's gathering crowds, as you would too, if you could heal people, and if you could uh, exercise demons with a word, you know, and if you were this incredible of a teacher as Jesus, the crowds were coming. In fact, in Mark 1.33, it says that the the whole town came. This is not just a few people from the town. This is the entire town would come to hear Jesus, and it just reminded me, you know, the presence of Jesus is irresistible, isn't it? When you know him, when you get to know him, when he heals you, when you see the miracles that he and he alone can do, his presence is irresistible and you want to be with him. And that's the case here in our story. So Capernaum is the town. It wasn't a big town, but it was a very important town to Jesus and to his disciples, Uh, mainly because this is the hometown of Peter. And Peter's home was here in Capernaum. And it became, just as our text says, it says Jesus was home. He treated it like his own home. This is where he and the disciples would hang out. This is where uh, they had good food, right? In fact, there's even a story of Peter healing, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law because she was sick. And it says after he healed her, she got up and started serving him, right? So that's that's a pretty good deal. Uh, So this is a a place that he considers home. He's comfortable. He's at rest here. And we get the sense that people have been waiting for him to come back to this home. Several years ago, I had the privilege to travel to the Holy Land, and one of the places that we stopped was Capernaum. It's a very small town. It's a little tiny seaport uh, kind of community right there on the Sea of Galilee that would fit literally on our property, and I wanted to show you just a couple of pictures from my trip to give you some context if I could, okay? So this, this just gives you a little example of the archaeological aspect. These are actual first century rocks and homes of what made up the homes. Home here, home there, home there. Literally living right next to each other, okay? It's not a big area. This kind of shows you some more of those homes connected to each other. On the left of the white structure is the synagogue in Capernaum. This would have been the place Jesus would have taught the Jews and Peter would have debated with the Jews. It's an incredibly interesting place to stand in and know the history that was there. And then this this last picture I want to show you is a picture of a place that's an octagonal shape. And what it is, is they believe that this is the location of a first century church, a Christian church. And what they would do back in the first century is they would put a church over something of other significance. Guess what this church was built upon? The house of Peter. 
So we're actually looking potentially at the stones and potentially the structure of Peter's home, which means the very story we're speaking of today could have been right there. I just think that's kind of cool, do you? I just love that. Just to give you a little example of what those homes looked like, what they were uh, built from, what they were made up of. They're very small. They're not, they're not large. That whole area was, I mean, 15 to 30 feet across. It was the biggest one in uh, all of Capernaum, uh, and it was Peter's home. So Jesus had been preaching all over Galilee. He'd been doing miracles all over the area, and word gets back to Capernaum that he's coming back home. And so people are waiting on him to get there. And when he begins to preach and share right there in Peter's living room, in essence, people crowd in. They're in the doorway. They're in the windows. They're outside. They are, you can't get another soul in. It's, this is packed as it can be. We also see that inside the room are the group of Pharisees. And not just some Pharisees from around Capernaum, but Pharisees from all around Galilee had gathered for this meeting. In fact, there were some Pharisees even from Jerusalem which is 80 miles away, this is several days' journey. They're coming to, to prove something, right? They're coming to catch Jesus in some way. And what's interesting, the text says they're seated in this meeting. Well, for them to be seated in this big of a meeting means they've been given a seat of honor. And how interesting for these Pharisees to be given a seat of honor, the front row, because Jesus is about to show them something they've never seen before, and he's going to teach us as a result as well. So in your card, the very first thing I wanted us to see this morning that's important about our story is that this paralytic, this man who's been crippled, he has got some amazing faithful friends. You see that? I mean, these are faithful friends. They are committed to him. They know him. They know his situation. They know the difficulty of him being paralyzed. Clearly, they love him. Clearly, they love him because they wouldn't serve him the way they're serving him if they didn't love him. This is, this is a group, a close group of brothers that love this man. They want the best for his life. That's what they want. They want to take him to Jesus. They want him to get help. They want him to be healed. Secondly, they're, they're urgent in their desire for him to be healed, right? They, they, they want to move him out of that, wherever he's at, to Jesus, wherever Jesus is at this exact moment. We, we hear the phrase, you know, seize the day, and that, man, they did. They realized Jesus is over here in this house, our friend's over here, and he's paralyzed, and if we can just get the two together, something's going to blow up, something's going to be incredible, and our friend's going to get help. They were, there was an urgency with their desire to get their friend to Jesus. The next thing is we see that they're absolutely crazy. You see that? They're either crazy or they're extremely creative. And unfortunately, sometimes those two go hand in hand. Creative and crazy go hand in hand. I, I've heard this somewhere. Um, but they're determined to see this man's life change. Nothing will stop them. We've got to get our friend to Jesus. We've got to get our friend to Jesus. So they bring this paralyzed man to this home. They're carrying him. It's not, it's not light, I'm sure. Right? This is a, a struggle. And they, they go around the home. There's no way to get in, no door, no window, no anything. And these homes were built in such a way that they would have an outside staircase leading to the roof. And I can just play it out in my mind that they're like, ah, you know, they're urgent, they're excited, they're determined. And there's like, there's a, there's a staircase. I mean, you can just imagine this conversation. The guys are like, no, I mean, they're meeting. You, know, you can just hear the, the argument. They choose to go up this staircase on 
to the roof, onto the roof. Now, homes in the first century made of rock, but the roof was made of these timbers. They would just lay timbers across the rock. And then in between the timbers, they would stack these smaller branches. And then on top of the branches, they would put a a layer of mud and thatch. And then on top of that, they would put these ceramic or clay tiles on top of the the roof. This is not like a peekaboo kind of roof, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) This This is a pretty significant structure, which when you think of it that way, changes sort of the story a little bit. I mean, the the text doesn't give us all the detail, but this is what had to have happened. This would have been an incredibly suspenseful and shocking moment. Can you imagine right now as I'm teaching? We hear something crunching and crackling, and all of a sudden, tiles begin to fall on your heads, our heads. Oh, my gosh. It would stop us in our tracks. We would all look up, and we would all be frustrated, especially Peter. This is his home. Whoa, whoa, whoa! What are you doing? You, you can just hear Peter interrupting. He would do that anyway, right? He interrupts Jesus. Hang on. What, what are you? Hey, hey, what are you doing in my house? And this is not a quick process. This is not like a dun, 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 and then let's lower it. No, this would have been like a timbers moving. Somebody's on the roof. You know what I mean? This would have taken a while. Somebody, I, what's going on? There's mud dripping. Again, this is Jesus' teaching. There would have been twigs and dirt and things falling down on everyone in that little home. It would have taken all their attention. It would have been a suspenseful and shocking moment, and there is no way that you could deny what was happening in this moment. It would have taken a while for them to open up a big enough hole in that roof to let this man down into the home. We don't see any of that detail, though it had to happen. What we do see in verse 5 is that Jesus, he doesn't, he doesn't you know, go, well, thanks a lot, you know, for the, you know, he doesn't do any of that. All we see in the text is Jesus just say, it says that Jesus saw their faith. I love that. There's no mention of the, the struggle. There's no mention of the, the interruption. There's no mention of the damage of property. It just says, and Jesus saw their faith. Speaking of the men carrying the paralytic. It reminded me that sometimes, well, all the time, the world needs to see our faith. But some of us want to treat our faith like it's just an internal thing. This is what I believe. This is my faith. I don't have to tell you about it. What? He said Jesus saw their faith. Well, faith, it seems like it's an internal thing, but no, we can actually work out our faith. We can let our faith be something that moves our feet and our hands and moves us to action, and that's what we see happen in these guys. Their faith was visible. Their action, their crazy determination was proof of the faith that they had in Jesus and that he could make a difference in their friend's life. That was their faith, not just this internal, it's just sort of my faith. No. Their faith led them to action. Lori and I had a friend several years ago his name was Brent, and he contracted ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, which is a horrible way to die. And he was a young man with a young family, and I'll never forget being at his funeral. We, we didn't know him that well. We had, had dinner with him. We had spent a little time with him, but we went to his funeral. And I remember at his funeral, some of his buddies coming up and speaking stories like you would at a funeral, saying, I mean, I got to tell you about the time that me and Brent did this, or, this is the, Brent loved this football team, and Brent used to love to do that. We heard these stories by these friends. 
And then I noticed at the end of the funeral, it was the very same friends that gave those stories and gave that aspect of that relationship with him that actually put their hands on his casket and lifted Brent. They were his pallbearers. Now, that's not an uncommon scene, but for some reason that day, it hit me really hard. And I thought, will the men who carry my body in death, are they the same men I'm allowing to carry me in life? Do I have people in my life, one day they may carry my dead body, but am I allowing, that's the easy part, by the way, okay? That's the easy part. The harder part is, am I allowing people into my life who are willing to carry me? Carry me through struggles, carry me through difficulties, carry me through physical and financial and job issues, whatever the case may be, who would love me enough to carry me in my life. Do you have those kind of friends? Faithful friends. Here's the second point on your card. The thing we see in this story is a forgiving Savior. We see a forgiving Savior. Jesus, when he sees this man let down, he sees the guy's faith. He sees the men on the roof, right? They're letting their friend down. He, he sees their faith, their action, what they're doing. And then he sees the man, the paralytic, and he looks at the man with compassion and love, and he says to him, my son, or translated, my child. This is a loving address. This is an endearing kind of moment. In fact, Matthew's gospel uh, says, Take heart, my son. Isn't that beautiful? Not I'm frustrated that you just broke up my friend's roof, right? He sees his needs, his greatest needs, and he says, take heart, my son. Jesus is drawn to this man, but what happens next is not what you would expect. The expectation of the men on the roof was that they would let their friend down, and he would be what? Healed, right? I mean, He's paralytic, he can't walk. They've carried him because he can't walk. Let's let him down so he can be healed, right? What do you think was on the mind of the man who couldn't walk? If I can just get to Jesus, then I can be what? Healed. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus throws him a curveball, if you will, right? And Jesus says, take heart, my son. Not you're healed, <laughs> He says, take heart, my son, my child, your sins are forgiven. Can you just imagine the guy going, okay? Or even the guys on the roof kind of going, what did he say? Did he say about the, no? What's, you know? It was a strange moment. Jesus threw him a curveball. But what I've noticed in this is sometimes what I think is most important for God to do in my life is sometimes not necessarily what God thinks is the most important thing to happen in my life. All right, so you're guilty too, huh? I've noticed it in how I pray. It's very revealing when we pray. We begin to go through the things we want, the things we need, the things that are uh, occupying the most space and stress in our heart and in our minds. And sometimes I've noticed that when God doesn't answer those the way I want him to answer, by his grace, sometimes I finally learn exactly what it is that he wants me to know. It might be more important than what I thought I needed. See, Jesus is saying in this moment that spiritual health is more important than physical health. In fact, you can, when I say physical health, you can put anything in there. Financial health, marital health, relational health, job health. Whatever it is, your situation, 
it's all true that you can say this. Spiritual health is more important than any other health in your life. Jesus, this is very clear that the expectation was to be healed. Heal him. And Jesus forgives his sins instead of healing him. See, God does care about your sickness. God does care about your job. He does care about your physical needs and your financial needs and your relational needs. He cares about everything in your life. He cares about your spiritual life most. You may not. And that's what we see in this story. The man cared about his healing. This is what's important to me. God, do this. I've been lame all my life. I've been on this bed all my life. I'm ready for a healing. And Jesus says, that's not the most important thing. Now, listen, we're going to see in just a minute that Jesus heals him, right? But what he's saying to us is that spiritual health is more important than anything else in your life. Friends, can I encourage you to hear that? Because you're going to be searching and seeking to be satisfied in a million different ways. And until you realize spiritual health is more important than any other health in your life, you will be dissatisfied. You will be unfulfilled. And you will not know the grace of Jesus the way he wants you to until you know spiritual health is the most important health in your life. Now, there's something interesting in this story that I want to bring up theologically. So we know in the whole of Scripture that to be forgiven, you have to ask for forgiveness. You have to be repentant. That's, that's the way we understand it because of the word of how to be forgiven. You know, confess your sins, right? Believe in your heart, confess your That's how we know this process of forgiveness. And yet this man doesn't say a word. Isn't that interesting? It's the only time we see in Scripture where Jesus forgives someone's sin and they didn't ask for it. But what we do see in just a minute is that the Pharisees, because of their thoughts and their hearts, we see that Jesus perceives their thoughts, doesn't he? He understands what's going on in their hearts. And if he understands what's going on in the hearts of the Pharisees, guess who else he understands their heart? The man. We can trust that Jesus is not changing theology. He's not changing the process here. We can trust that Jesus, however, is a loving and caring, compassionate, forgiving Savior. And so when he sees this man, he says, take heart, my son. Take heart. And then he says the words, your sins are forgiven. It's because he could see into the man's heart. He could see the man's repentant desire for forgiveness and God is so loving. Jesus is so loving. He didn't have to wait for the man to say, would you forgive me? He could see it on his heart. That's how loving Jesus is. That's how kind he is. That he would meet the man all that way and go all the way. Hey, I see it. I understand it. I forgive your sins. Beautiful how compassionate our Savior is. There's another theological aspect to this that Jesus is revealing in this moment and in this story very, something very important about his nature. Right? He is God. That's what he's revealing in this moment. Jesus is God. The Pharisees start questioning it. They start in their own hearts saying, how, how could he say that? He's blaspheming. Well, the reality is Jesus is either, either a blasphemer or he is God. He's already done one act to show that he's God. He forgave the man's sins. But just like any of us sitting here this morning, I don't know if you know Jesus. 
I can't look at you and go, yep, you know Jesus. You can't look at me and know that. But as I live out my life, you can see proof that I know Jesus, I hope. In the same way that I look into your life, I can't see it right off. But if I see this ongoing nature, the fruit of your life, I see this ongoing spirit of God moving, living in your obedience, I see that God has changed your heart and saved your soul. In the same way, Jesus in this moment, he sees the the evil in these men's hearts. He sees what they're saying, what they're thinking about him. And so he speaks to it. He speaks to it. Jesus Jesus in this moment shows us that he is God. I want to just show you a a few uh, scriptures here. By the way, only God can do this, okay? The Pharisees would have known that there were some prophets in history that have um, healed people. That, That would have been something that had been done before. Okay, well, he's a prophet. Which many religions, by the way, this is important. For many of you who've grown up in other religions, you have friends in different faiths. This is important that you hear this. This is one of the, main, this is one of the things that, that marks us as different about what we believe, about who Jesus is and the Trinity, that he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He's not just a prophet because they healed. Jesus forgives sins. Only God can do that. Only God can also read minds and know the hearts of men. Look at this, 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 1 Kings 8, 39. Then here in heaven your dwelling place, and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you will only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. 1 Chronicles 28, 9. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. Jeremiah 17, 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. And Ezekiel eleven five. And the spirit of the Lord fell upon me and he said to me, say, thus says the Lord, so you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. God is the only one who can do that. So now here's another way that Jesus is saying, I'm God. I've forgiven sins, only God can do that. And now he's saying, I'm reading your mind. I'm reading your heart. I'm God. Still, Still, these these Pharisees aren't seeing it. They're not seeing it. In in the Pharisees' minds, all that they can think about is the fact that only God in heaven forgives sin. And that's why Jesus speaks to that exact thing. He says, no, I've been given authority on earth. I've been given authority on earth to forgive sins. And he speaks exactly to it. Jesus is revealing his nature as Messiah, as God. And they miss it, so he proves it. Watch this, Mark 2, 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Jesus says. Which one of these is easier, guys, for me to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Now, he hadn't done that yet. The man's still laying lame on the bed. Sin's forgiven. Legs not working, right? Which is easier, say your sins are forgiven, or say, rise, pick up your bed and walk? Verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. See, neither of these things to me sound very easy. (laughs) In fact, they're not. They're only things that God can do. 
Jesus is proving a point, right? He's basically saying, you need, you need visible proof? Okay. If you need visible proof, watch this. Rise, take up your bed, and go home. And the man immediately gets up, picks up his bed, and leaves. And Jesus does this incredible miracle, which, by the way, doing this visible miracle, something that the people see and can experience and watch, gives credibility to the invisible miracle he's already done in the man's soul. You see that? The visible miracle of allowing the man to get up and walk gives proof, gives credibility to the invisible miracle that he's already done in his soul. A few years ago, I was traveling as a singer with a group called New Song. And one of the things, crazy story, but one of the things that we did when I was out there was we went to South Africa and we played some concerts with Benny Hinn. Now, some of you are familiar with the name Benny Hinn. Um, not my favorite preacher, uh, but he, he does these events and they're, they're these healing events. And of course, I was skeptical going in. I don't, I don't really approve of Benny Hinn's ministry. And so it was kind of conflicting for me to sing a concert at his event, but I just sat there sideline one night before we ever did any concerts at all. And it was several hours before the concert. And he's got all these bodyguards with him. They're all packing you know, weapons, and they're there to protect him and stuff. And, and I'm watching as those guards go out. We're, at, we're in uh, Port Elizabeth, South Africa, which is, uh, there's a place there that has um, the Nelson Mandela Municipality Field House, which is a, a large track and field complex, huge. Over 30,000 people were there. Hundreds were in line to be healed. And I was, the only thing that separated me and those people was a chain link fence. And I just stood there holding onto the fence and looking out at those people. Waiting for God to change their lives, to, to heal their bodies. And I watched these goons that were with Benny walk out into that group of people. And for anyone who had a, had a visible inf, uh, issue, if they're in a wheelchair, if they're missing a limb, if it's something you could see was wrong with them, his goons would turn them away and they would literally make them get out of line to be healed and go away. And I, I found it strange then, but especially later in the night when he, I realized all the people who had been healed had been healed of heart issues or brain issues or tumor issues or HIV or things that could not be verifiably proven. They couldn't be visually proven. And my heart was broken for all those people. It was sad. Can God heal? Sure. And that's why this story is so different than that story. His goons were sending people away because he couldn't give verifiable proof. And Jesus says, you want proof? Watch this. Rise. Pick up your bed and go home. And the man immediately gets up. And he goes home, and he does so, so caringly. Take heart, my son. But when he says that, he's speaking to the man's emotional state. Uh, why would Jesus say that unless he saw something in the man that needed encouraging, right? Hey, take heart, my son. He speaks to the man's emotional need. Your sins are forgiven. He speaks to the man's spiritual need. Rise and walk. He heals the man's physical Need. That's the kind of Savior we have. He meets every single need of our lives. Something that's also interesting is 
Jesus forgives this man because Jesus is the only one who can. See, every sin, Jesus has an offense with every sin. He's a holy God. He takes offense to every sin. And just like, remember the story we told about the woman uh, called in the act of adultery? He didn't just sort of wink at her sin and say, no big deal, go away. No, he knew that that sin would have a price. And he knew that he would pay it. And in the same way, he knew that this man's sins would be paid for and he would be the one to pay it. In fact, in Mark, the Greek word for rise, take your bed and walk. I love this. It's the same Greek word that Mark uses later on when he's speaking of Jesus rising from the grave. It's the same word. You see, what gives credibility is the fact that Jesus will die on a cross and rise from a grave and he and he alone can say, son, your sins are forgiven because he paid for it, right? Here's the third point from your card. When these people see all that God is doing, there's no question that they begin to fear God. They fear God. Mark 2, 12 says this, and he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Or Matthew 9, 8, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God. Glorifying God is the one common denominator that flows through these uh, accounts. Luke 5, 26, and amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. When people are exposed to the miracles and the working and the love and the compassion and the beauty of Jesus and his gospel, they will glorify God. When they get a sense of the weight of what's being done in this moment, some people don't understand, why do people worship like this? Why do they raise their hands? Why do they cry? Why do they fall at their knees sometimes? Because they've gotten a sense of the gravity of what he's done in their soul. When he understands, when you understand what Jesus has done in your soul, and you know that you deserve hell, you deserve for him not to pay you any mind, and yet he says, take heart, my son. I see your brokenness. I forgive your sins, and I heal your life then we will worship. I noticed there was a lottery this week. I didn't win. Neither did you. I was thinking about that and and how much money that is and how much that's going to do something good or bad to somebody. But this man won a greater lottery, didn't he? In one moment, in one moment, he's given eternity. He's given eternal life. You can't put a price on that. In one moment, he's given a new body. You can't put a price on that. He already had really good friends. And now he's got a pretty great story to tell and a life to live. He was carried into this place on the bed that he had laid all of his life. And now he stands and he himself carries that bed out. That's strong and that'll preach in your life. That'll preach in your life. What is the thing that you've uh, been dependent upon? (laughs) That Jesus has changed in you so much and now you can take that thing and walk out and you can help somebody else who's dealing with it. I'm going to close. What's this story teach us today about how to live and who God is in our story series? Well, a couple of things here. Number one, do you have faithful friends? Do you have people who love you enough that they want to surround you in community? They want to love you. They want to serve you. They want to care for you. They want to be committed to you no matter what it takes. 
They want to lead you to Jesus. Do you have those friends? Or has that aspect of your Christian life not that big of a deal to you? Do the men who will carry you in death, do you have some people that are carrying you in life? You need faithful friends. That's what we hope our city groups can be. That's what they, we pray that they will be, not just a place for Bible study, not just a place to fill in some answers in a book. No, we want this to be a place where you're walking life and exhibiting faith together with people because we need each other. Here's the second thing. Maybe you're in a city group. Maybe you're a part of a group and you love each other and you care for each other. Is there something more that you can do? Is there a life that you can influence? Is there somebody that you can reach out to who needs help? either in the group or out of the group, because if there's one thing I know about this church and this community is there's still a lot more help to be done. <laughs> there's, there's a lot more we can do. It's, this is not a hard place to find where you can plug in. In fact, this is not a church, by the way. If you're checking us out, this is not the kind of church to just come, come and check out and, and watch from the sidelines. This is a working church, man. We're going to put you to work because that's the mission of Jesus, that we, be, we let our faith be an active and visible faith. We need your help. Come get to work with us. Come love this community with us. Let Jesus do a work through you that you can't do alone. You need to do it with us. But there's so many opportunities we have. This community is in great need of faithful friends. Will you be that? And then lastly, do you fear God? If I were to ask you that individually, some of many of you would be like, yeah, sure, I fear God. But your life doesn't look like it. Some, some of these, these stories, these accounts, all speak to the fact that they saw God moving and doing something incredible, and they all glorified God. What does it mean in your life to glorify God? Are you glorifying God with your life? Are you glorifying God with your life? Are you giving glory to him by the way you live and serve and, and encourage and wrestle and question and doubt? Are you giving glory in all those things? Because you can, and it's done in community. Here's the last thing. We learned this morning that God rewards crazy faith. He rewards crazy faith when we put it into action. Let people see your faith. Let them see your faith. Here's the next thing. Our greatest need is spiritual health. It's for our sins to be forgiven. That's your greatest need. Whatever you came in here with this morning and you think you have a need in your life, your greatest need is to be forgiven and to have health in Jesus. Everything else will work itself out, my friends. I promise you. When we place him first, I was encouraging somebody this week in our What's Next group, just keep putting Jesus first. Just keep being obedient. Just keep trusting him. He will work out the details. I promise you. It's his promise to us to seek him first and him worry out the details. Here's the, here's the last thing. God can see your hearts. God can read your mind. What is he seeing this morning? Is he seeing somebody in need of forgiveness? Do you need Jesus? Have you trusted him to be your savior? Do you know him? Are you living that way? Do you need a family? Do you need some faithful friends? Have you got involved in one of our groups? Are you being cared for in that way? He knows your heart and mind. What does he see? And then lastly, I would just say, my prayer for our church this morning is that we would recognize who Jesus is, what he's done, and that somehow we would all be filled with amazement. That's worship. That's awe. That we would let the beauty of the gospel of Jesus that has changed our lives 
be so significant that we glorify God with all that we are and all that we do and that we're willing to get our hands dirty in the lives of people. Are you? Pray with me this morning. Father God, I, I thank you so much for this story. I thank you, Lord, for the lesson of faithful friends and the need for community and the need for the church. For whatever reason, Lord, it's sort of become popular that the church is not really needed anymore. I, I can have my faith and never speak it. Or I can, I can believe certain things and never go be a part of a church because they're a bunch of hypocrites anyway. Yes, it's true. We're all covered by your grace, Lord. We're covered by your grace. We are hypocrites in ways. We make mistakes. We, we sin, Lord. We, we fail you and we fail each other. And it's only by your grace that we can hold on to each other and say, let's hang on to this to each other and him alone. God, we need you desperately. We need each other. Just as we see the story of these faithful friends lowering this man in such great need before the Savior. Lord, help us to truly understand the great need of community, the great need of Christian friends, Christian accountability. If it's not existent in our, in our lives, God, would you make it that way? We have to surrender what we think. I would just ask this crowd today, Lord, how's it going for you? How's it going not revealing your heart to other people? How's it going only letting your faith be something that's seen a couple hours on Sunday. How's it going for you? God, may our faith be real every moment of every day in brokenness and in victory. Lord, may we understand the greatest need of our lives is knowing you. And if there's one person here that doesn't know you today, God, would you give them the courage in just a minute to get out of their seat and walk down this aisle and come speak to one of our pastors and say, I need to know Jesus. I don't want to die and go to hell. I don't want to live a life of, with no purpose. I want to be, uh, live my life on purpose. I want to know Christ and I want my life to matter. I want to win this spiritual lottery you just talked about. I want, I want to have purpose. And God, if we're sitting in here as believers and we have our small groups, would you burden our soul for those in need? Those who are helpless and can never return the favor. Those who were lost and dying, going to hell, would you give us a burden and a passion, Jesus, to reach out and serve them, to give them a drink of water, to clothe them, to visit them in prison. Lord, would you help us? Because your word says in Matthew 25 that when we do that, we're doing it as unto you. Take away the stigma, Lord, of classes and wealth and poverty and help us to see people created in your image in need of your grace God change our hearts to see people the way you see them and give us the courage to carry them if we have to to the Savior thank you God for your spirit in this place would you move in us now move us to obedience trusting you. Emmanuel, God with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.